The story of phage therapy began over a century ago. It was once a source of great hope in the quest for treatment against bacterial infection, until it was eclipsed by the discovery of antibiotics. Now, the combination of sustained selection due to global antibiotic overuse and evolution doing what evolution does has caused renewed interest in phage therapy. This is the story of a little girl at risk of suffering an amputation and the team that treated her. We'll also stop briefly at Stalingrad, hear about a very sick sea turtle, and discuss the challenges of interpreting single patient studies. Welcome to the EMBO Podcast. Dr. Amane Katami, a pediatric infectious disease physician at the Children's Hospital at Westmead and senior lecturer at the University of Sydney, Australia, together with senior author Dr. Jonathan Iredell, professor of medicine at the University of Sydney and infectious diseases physician and microbiologist at Westmead Hospital, and their collaborators, published the story of a seven-year-old girl with a Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection that was highly resistant to conventional treatment. Their study, based on the case, was published in the journal Embo Molecular Medicine in August of 2021. The paper is entitled, Bacteriolysis, Autophagy, and Innate Immune Responses During Adjunctive Phage Therapy in a Child. Dr. Katami told us her patient's story. Sure, yeah. Um, so our patient was a delightful seven-year-old girl, Australian patient, but had, was overseas on holiday and unfortunately suffered quite a significant motor vehicle accident and resulted with um, quite a lot of injuries to her leg um, and had a prolonged hospital admission overseas requiring um, several surgical procedures and insertion of different um, metalware in various parts of her legs. And unfortunately, as a consequence of all those procedures and the prolonged hospitalization, um, she did acquire an infection which primarily tracked along um, what's called a KY, so a, a sort of a metal um, stabilizer which goes in, went in from her heel up through her ankle joint and into her tibia. And this allowed the infection to spread across all of these bones and joints um, and sort of track along where the, where the wire had been. And, and once the wire was removed, um, she became symptomatic and she developed a uh, what's called a sinus tract. So discharge was coming out from the side of the infection and she had quite a lot of pain and wasn't really able to, to put weight on that leg. Um, she was fairly well in herself systemically. She wasn't particularly unwell with sort of high fevers or anything like that, which suggested it was sort of a, a grumbling chronic infection. Um, and, but this infection persisted for several months until the patient was eventually able, stable enough to be able to come back to Australia. Um, and she was seen fairly promptly by our, by our orthopaedic colleagues um, at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, who initially took a swab from the discharge that was coming out just superficially, which identified a Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which was highly resistant. It carried a New Delhi uh, metallobetalactamase gene, um, and so it was resistant to quite a large panel of antibiotics. And essentially the only thing that the organism was susceptible to um, was colistin, polymixin B, um, with intermediate susceptibilities to another betalactam-like agent, um, Astrianam. It wasn't very uh, promising in terms of antibiotic options. Colistin is, is highly toxic when given intravenously um, and she would uh, have needed months of treatment for the, the extent of infection that she had. Our surgeons 
you know, did some imaging, some MRI scans to look at the extent of the injury and then prepared to do some debridement to try and um, do what we call source management or, or debulking of as much of the infection as possible, which is just to get rid of it surgically. And she underwent that um, you know, in early July, I think, in, in 2019. And from the surgical samples, we were able to confirm the, the, the same isolate with the same resistance pattern, you know, from the, from the deep sites that they took at surgery. But the surgeons were really limited in how much they could drain out or debride because of the extent of the infection, which was pretty much throughout most of the bones of her lower leg, um, the joints, the, the soft tissues. There really wasn't a lot that they could do to manage the infection surgically. After that debridement, she started on antibiotics and we used the only antibiotics we had, which was the colistin and the astrianam. The isolate was actually also susceptible to another antibiotic called cefidericol, which is a newer agent, but um, this is still um, un unlicensed um, in Australia. And at the time, a couple of years ago, getting access to it was very difficult. Um, so we really didn't have um, any other antibiotic choices. And from the outset, we knew that it was going to be an uphill battle, that it was going to be um, difficult to get this infection under control because of the agent, the limitations and agents that we had and the toxicities associated with those infections. And on the other hand, the extent of the infection that we could see and the chronicity of the infection um, that the, the patient's family were describing for us. But we, you know, we gave it a go. We we tried the antibiotics to see what happened, and essentially, not much happened. She still had quite a lot of pain, quite a lot of limitation in her movement, uh, her mobility because of pain. And we sort of went about um, ten weeks, and repeat imaging suggested that the infection was progressing. So the antibiotics hadn't really managed to get on top of the infection, and. As I explained earlier, the, the orthopaedic surgeons had already told us there wasn't much more they could do surgically. So the next step in trying to manage this infection, if the antibiotics had failed, was to do a baloney amputation. Um, and obviously that's quite um, distressing for a young seven-year-old child um, and to her family as well. And so we really felt that we had to try whatever other options were available to us. And myself and other colleagues, um, John Idell at the adult hospital, we're already talking about phage therapy anyway. Um, and so she seemed the, the perfect candidate in the sense that, you know, she was somebody who um, we had a clean isolate that we could test um, it wasn't acutely life-threatening, but it certainly was something that was life-altering and so therefore, um, you know, worth the investigation for alternative therapies. And it was around that point that we really started to have conversations with the family about whether they wanted to um, explore this as an adjunctive therapeutic approach. It's always, with a single case, um, hard to know what would have happened if we hadn't done it. It's possible that if we'd continued just with IV antibiotics for a year, the infection would have become under control. But at that time, we felt that we didn't have the option to wait for the antibiotics to fail because at that point, amputation would have been her only choice. And so we really thought that we had to try something else sooner rather than, than later.
So we actually sent out her isolate um, to multiple institutions ar ar around the world, and that was um, facilitated by Phage Directory, for, to, to which we're, we're grateful. Um, so they helped to send out her isolate and put the call out to international you know, phage researchers, um, and it was incredibly generous, the outpouring of response that we had from multiple institutions who were happy to give us their phages for our patient, and we got hits, I guess, um, from lots of different places around the world. The reason why we went with this particular um, phage product was more around the concerns around the, the product and the formulation rather than the actual phage virus um, because it was a, uh, a product that was coming from a, um, it was a commercial company, but they had produced phage for clinical use previously. And they had very good documentation about their purification processes. Um, and we were able to, to receive all of that and use that to satisfy our hospital, our, our institution's drug committee and our executives, that what we were doing was safe, because that was clearly primary here we were using something that's a very investigational or um, unlicensed uh, product in a, in a young child for the first time in Australia and so we had to say that we were not going to harm her so that became our key safety concern um, and so yes this particular phage product was in a way that we felt confident in its use um, and that's how we selected it. Microbiologist Jessica Satcher did her PhD in phage biology at the University of Alberta. Jessica and software engineer Jan Zeng co-founded Phage Directory in 2017. She spoke with us about Phage Directory and its role in the case of the Westmead patient. Yeah, so that was back in 2019, and I was just kind of looking it up um, in our database of the phage alerts that we've helped. and so far, um, and that was our 12th alert, and so we're on about number 32 or something that of patient cases we've helped find phages for, so, but it hasn't changed a whole lot, the process, since then, um, and it kind of started out in the very beginning in 2017, very similarly, where we have a bunch of phage labs, um, and they subscribe to, essentially, it's like a newsletter alert, it's just an email system that um, we'll send out when we have an urgent patient alert that needs a phage. And so the labs, it's totally opt-in. They subscribe if they want to hear about a new patient case. And um, we put out an alert. Our main criteria is we have to have a physician on board that the treating physician needs to know, you know, uh, what they're getting into and be willing to kind of shepherd this from their end because we do... These alerts globally, so it's always different based on the country what's allowed and, you know, what pathway for using the phage is. But as long as the physician kind of knows about, you know, how to get compassionate use therapy, um, how to get that going for a patient, and they know that, you know, phage therapy is experimental, but um, we, you know, we can try it, we, we can go ahead and send an alert. And so Dr. Katami Amina, she and Dr. Iredell, her collaborator, reached out to us in August 2019. And yeah, they said they had a patient who, like a seven-year-old girl, who um, was going to be facing amputation and uh, needed pseudomonas phages. And we, we just met them recently before that. We hadn't really exchanged many emails, but they somehow knew about us. And so put out an alert. And I think at that time, it was the most uh, widely responded alert that we'd had. We had 
12 different labs from 12 different countries respond in about 24 hours. And they would say, I have phages, I have this many pseudomonas phages. And they'd also say either whether they want to receive the isolate from the patient so they can do the testing, or they would say, um, I can just send you my phages. Like, which one do you want? So far, phage directory has been contacted to assist in over 30 different cases. Three or four have already engaged in treatment with phage. Not every case involved a sick human. You know, it was like New Year's Eve when we got that alert request, like, hey, we have a sea turtle in our aquarium, and it's an endangered turtle, I think, and um, can you do this for that? And we're like, well, to us it doesn't matter, sure. And we thought nobody would respond on New Year's Eve, and we got, like, a massive response, and it was crazy. And then they found phages, and that was one of the cases that went through to the end, like, treatment. It succeeded, like, the turtle is good. (laughs) The 42-year-old female sea turtle had been suffering from a nasty, persistent citrobacter infection for four years, and the bug had become multidrug resistant. Whitney Green and colleagues reported her successful treatment with phage in the Journal of Aquatic Animal Health in 2021. Getting back to our story, Dr. Katami and Dr. Iredell now had their candidate phage strain in hand in a clinical-grade formulation. But how much should they administer to their young patients? In general, we think that for um, when you have bacteremia, you probably need 10 to the 9 platform units per mil so that you get about 10 to 100, what we call the, the MOI multiplicity of infection, so the number of phages per bacterial target, which we think is optimal from animal studies. So a lot of this is very, very extrapolated. We don't really know how much you need. We don't really know uh, how much is optimal or how much is sufficient. Um, And actually, you'll see very wildly varying practice around the world in terms of what's actually being done. But if you sort of work on sort of first principles, we think from animal studies, if you had a bacteremic episode, so, you know, bacteria in the blood, um, how much bacteria would you typically see with most common human pathogens? So how much phage do you need in that context? And that's probably about 10 to the 9 PFUs per mil. That would probably be the minimum, the at least amount that we would want to go for. This particular product that we received came with dosing recommendations from the company which um, we were um, happy to follow and essentially it came to sort of 10 to the 11 PFUs per per mil and so that made us feel confident that we were above what we thought was um, a necessary amount. Now obviously this is not a bacteremic case, this is a patient who's got a deep-seated bony infection and it's hard to know whether you need more or less in that context probably you need more because actually the bacterial load in that area of infection is is quite high and a lot of those um, organisms are going to because they've been sitting there for months and months and months they've probably got quite a lot of what we call sort of general stress responses that they're quite good at hiding from the immune system and quite good at hiding from any kind of attack and so yeah we felt comfortable that going higher than 10 to the 9 was the appropriate thing and so um, it's that the company had suggested the 10 to the 11 dosing and it fit within the endotoxin limits we were able to get that documentation from the company of you know how much endotoxin was um, in the in the vial 
um, and we can calculate based on what the FDA recommendations are for the sort of the pyrogenic threshold for how much endotoxin can be administered per dose. And essentially that's what determined the dose that we gave her. In terms of the once daily, twice daily, that was predominantly a pragmatic decision. As I said, this was the first time that a child in Australia was going to receive phage and it was going to be given intravenously. And so we really had safety first um, in terms of what we were doing. And obviously, if you give something twice a day, the second dose is given in the evening when you have fewer nursing, fewer doctors, you know, fewer people around in the hospital. And we really felt that maybe for the first couple of days, we should just give it in the morning when there's lots of people around, just in case anything happened. We didn't think it would, but it was just more around being um, confident about that and making sure that you know our hospital and our nursing staff and everyone felt confident in what they were doing. And so the initial plan had been, we'll give it once daily for a couple of days and then switch to twice daily treatment once we were um, happy that things were tolerated well and there weren't any issues. And so she had once daily treatment on the first couple of days and actually on the third day she got the twice daily treatment. But by that point, we actually had the first of our results from the kinetics monitoring that we were doing, where we were looking at her viable phage in her blood in real time. And so we had done this on basically the second day, pre-dose, um, and we had the result available on the third day. And it became apparent that 23 hours after the dose, the initial dose that she'd had, prior to her second dose, she had viable phage in her blood. And so that made us think that maybe we don't need to go to twice daily treatment because if she's still got circulating viable phage, why would you need to give her more than you know a single dose in 24 hours? Um, and so we went back to once daily treatment and then we continue to monitor the phage, the circulating phage that's viable by plaque acid. And by around the day seven to the end of the first week, she no longer had any phage that we could detect in her serum. Um, and at that point, we switched to twice daily treatment. The most important thing that we demonstrated was that the, the, the therapy was safe. You know, she tolerated it very well. There weren't any significant safety concerns. Um, and more than anything, for us, it was um, a proof of principle and, and a sort of a feasibility to say that, look, we can do this. We can do it in children. We can do it safely. And this is certainly something that should be explored for other patients. It's always hard to draw conclusions when you have a single case in terms of efficacy. But in saying that, we had evidence to suggest there was therapeutic benefit. And the evidence came in multiple ways. We had a clinical response. You know, she developed a fever. She had a rise in her inflammatory markers, you know, her bedside inflammatory markers. Um, she had increased pain locally shortly after the phage therapy had started. And this all matched with the kinetics that we were seeing in terms of the, the bacterial DNA being released, the sort of the predator-prey curve that we were seeing in terms of both the phage and the bacteria, and in terms of the RNA trap and scriptomes, in terms of the innate immune response to what was um, probably LPS or endotoxin release from bacterial lysis. And so all of that fit together that we were getting a therapeutic benefit. The phage were attacking the bacteria and she was um, experiencing an inflammatory response to that. Um, so that was in the initial, you know, sort of during the treatment. About two weeks after her treatment, the patient had some improvement in her pain subjectively. She was saying that, you know, she had less pain than she had before. And, you know, a couple of months after her treatment, she definitely had significant improvement in her pain and her mobility and was able to walk a lot more than she could before. You know, she could walk a couple of blocks to her friend's house where before she was barely doing more than a few steps around her own house. And so 
there was an obvious um, subjective um, clinical improvement and then her radiology her MRI started to improve you know several months down the line it's as I said, hard to say because it was a single case and she was getting antibiotics in the background as well. So how much of this was, how much of the clinical improvement was the phage versus the antibiotics? We, we can't really separate out. But as I said, certainly during the treatment, she demonstrated along several parameters that the phage did have a therapeutic effect on the patient and the ultimate outcome is that we've got a little girl who's now functionally very has very little limitations um, and who didn't end up needing an amputation Um, so ultimately I think we've had a good outcome as much as we are limited in our ability to say much about you know proving that it was the phage that had that outcome They are a staple of the clinical literature, but single-patient studies present something of a conundrum to basic research journals. Embo Molecular Medicine scientific editor Jekyll Djordjevic explained to us what EMM looks for in a case report. We try to look for an advance. It has to have some kind of an advance, either a drug, new drug, or repurposed drug, or to have a deeper understanding uh, of how therapy works. For example, this phage therapy. Phage therapy is not novel per se, but uh, they describe um, immune response in the patients that received the therapy that that was very interesting and and novel. Case reports without any intervention, like genetic diseases, and there we um, look whether this mutation is novel and not reported before. um, And um, these studies also have to have deeper mechanistic insight in what this mutation in the uh, respective gene does. Um, Particularly, we look whether they use patient cells, uh, whether they can model this in in some animal uh, model, um, and so on. So this kind of criteria. What we try to do in these cases is to secure at least one reviewer with a clinical experience uh, for genetic diseases, this is not that important, but for intervention diseases, it's important to have a clinician to look at um, at intervention that is reported in in the in the publication. As Jaco reminded us, phage therapy has a long history. The existence of viral pathogens of pathogenic bacteria was first clearly proposed by Frederick Tort and Felix Dehel, who were both working in the infectious diseases-rich environment of World War One. Dehel coined the term bacteriophage in 1918. Phage quickly became a target of great clinical interest in the period following the Great War. Besides his clinical research, Dehel himself developed phage products for the Safe Hair Dye Company of France, a company that still exists today under a different name, L'Oréal. Phage also entered the popular culture. Nobel Prize-winning author Sinclair Lewis had his idealistic protagonist, Martin Aerosmith, doggedly pursuing phage therapy as a cure for disease. Phage research was particularly developed in the former Soviet Union. Dr. Dmitry Mionikov, a science historian at the University of Manchester, told us a bit of the history of phage research and therapy back in the USSR. Right, so there were several links between the kind of big French institutions of microbiology at this time, so the Pasteur Institute being the, being the main one where Darrell was also working. And there were a few connections that sort of brought it back to, to Russia. 
Nikolai Gamaleya would be one example. Uh, but, uh, I mean, most important for, for my work was uh, Gheorghe Eliava, who was a Georgian microbiologist who moved to Paris in the middle of uh, World War One to work with Darrell in, at the Pasteur Institute. And then when he moved back to Georgia and through the various wars that led up to, to the foundation of the Soviet Union, uh, stayed there and set up the kind of bacteriophage research program in, in the Soviet Union, uh, centered in Tbilisi, or Tiflis as it then was. A lot of the work in, in, in microbiology was quite focused on specific pathogens and isolating pure lines of bacteria, uh, whereas in, in the Soviet Union more uh, research was done on the sort of what we would call microbial ecology or disease ecology, uh, on the connections between microbes in the environment, uh, and bacteriophages were a big part of that. In some ways this goes back all the way to the 19th century to a lot of research on soil uh, microbiology and the work of, of people like Vinogradsky. Uh, but in other ways also appealed to this kind of Marxist worldview, I guess, that, that sort of stressed the, the, the interactions there. So, so in many ways, early research into antibiotics also drew on those, on those ideas, the, the kind of competition between bacteria and how we could find compounds that, that they produce to outcompete each other in a population. Uh, so in some ways, Darrell's ideas about uh, immu immunity and about the spread of infections in, in a population, either a human or an animal population, and how bacteriophage interacted with those, uh, found quite a, quite a fertile ground in Soviet science. So even though his ideas were quite controversial in Europe, uh, he, he managed to publish his last book, Bacteriophage and the Phenomenon of Recovery, in, in Russian, before it appeared even in French. Uh, in the 1930s. Uh, so there were quite, in some ways, radical ideas that bacteriophages were a crucial part of human immune response, and also that as bacterial infections spread through a population during an epidemic, bacteriophages then followed suit. So it's almost this kind of predator-prey relationship where you have an explosion of bacteria and then explosion of bacteriophage that also spreads through population. So uh, in some ways, the Georgian scientists, uh, ex they didn't necessarily embrace all of those ideas, but they did experiment with some of them. They tried to use phage in wells uh, to, to spread them through water to see if that would prevent infections, things like dysentery and, and cholera. Uh, and they, they kind of really embraced this, this approach that went beyond trying to understand the kind of immediate interaction within the cell to the more population level view. Uh, which sort of remains a, a big theme for, for the Institute after the war, as well after World War II. Soviet scientists tried to use phage not only to treat individual patients, but also in public health applications. For example, to reduce the level of pathogenic bacteria in the water supply to try to avoid outbreaks of diseases like cholera and dysentery. There are definitely claims of success with, with cholera in... Um, uh, not so much in Georgia, but more with the Moscow-based work by Zinaida Yermolyeva, who went to prevent pandemics on the border with Afghanistan in the, uh, sorry, epidemics, I should say, uh, on the border with Afghanistan in the late 30s, and then in various places during, during the war, uh, notably in Stalingrad. I mean, we're in a time before the kind of gold standard of double-blind uh, clinical trial is really established. Uh, they're actually starting to get developed for testing new antibiotics in the West. So a lot, of the, a lot of the claims are much more based on observation, based on sort of personal experience, and there's a lot more value given to individual experience, both in how it's written up in the scientific literature, but also in how uh, Soviet authorities, medical authorities, approved those sorts of things. So there's a lot of emphasis on authority and, and experience. So it's difficult to say, historically, how effective they were, but there are definitely 
effective enough to, to sustain this line of research into phage therapy and prophylaxis. It's fair to point out that the rudimentary stage of development of randomized controlled clinical trial protocols in the 30s and 40s was not the only impediment. From his paper, An Alternative Cure, here's Dr. Munikov on the conditions Dr. Ermoleva worked under. Ermoleva made it to Stalingrad on a small plane, but German bombers destroyed the freight train that carried phage from Moscow. Ermoleva had to set up her own production, handling local cholera vibrios in a hospital basement in order to prepare for subsequent mass prophylaxis. Back in Tbilisi, Marxist-Leninist affinities for the finer ideological subtleties of phage therapy and Georgian connections would not keep Eliava safe during the Great Terror. Eliava was able to draw on a lot of the connections through the Georgian connections, the kind of old Bolshevik network, uh, to get funding for various things, and especially for his big project, the, the Bacteriophage Institute in, in Tbilisi, which is what became the Eliava Institute. So they, they were able to secure funds from central Moscow government much more easily. Uh, relying on those connections and going around local Georgian authorities sometimes, which in some ways ultimately backfired for, for Eliava, who had a very difficult relationship with Beria, who became the kind of one of the key figures in the Stalin terror, and Eliava was executed in, in 1938, partly in a case connected with a, a different old Georgian Bolshevik, Budum Divani. Even though there was a real risk for bacteriophage research and therapy, in the light of, of Eliava's arrest, uh, there are other authorities that, that basically invested much more value into potential medical uses of, of phages, especially in the battlefield. Uh, so again, Moscow institutes take over in this period in many ways, and Zinaida Yermolyeva, uh, who's one of the scientists who was also responsible for the first uh, synthesized Soviet penicillin, was in the earlier years of the war really active in phage research. So I mentioned her doing prophylaxis, uh, prophylaxis in, in Stalingrad and other places like that. Uh, but but there was also other lines of, of inquiry. Uh, the, the war, actually just before the Soviet Union enters World War II, there's a war with Finland uh, that happens in 1938, 39-1940, uh, under the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, in a way, or enabled by the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So in, in the war with Finland, there is trials of bacteriophage preparations for wound treatment. And it's, it's one of the first big, big large-scale trials that, that shows that you could use phage quite successfully. Um, there's also the other issue that uh, antibiotics become, remain very scarce in, in the Soviet Union throughout the war, and actually tr after the war as well, for a few years. Uh, so they could get the sulfur drugs from the Allies, uh, which were a chemical sul sulfonamides, I guess is the name. Uh, they're the kind of precursors to antibiotics that you could use, as, again, as quite broad-range treatments for infection, especially wounds. Uh, they, they were quite popular, but, but penicillin was not available to the Soviets easily. So in many ways, there were a lot of attempts to synthesize their own in, in Moscow. Uh, the new archival evidence and in some interviews seem to suggest that there was a lot of espionage going on, trying to figure out how the kind of deep fermentation technology in the United States, based on the Oxford penicillin developments, was, was taking place and how the Soviets could adapt it. After the war, uh, the Cold War starts really quickly and the relationships between the US and the Soviet Union deteriorate really rapidly. So while a lot of other countries in Europe benefited from the US aid in, in building their own penicillin production and facilities, the Soviet Union never quite got to that phase. So they're really trying to make a lot of their own Russian penicillin initially, uh, Krustazin, as it was called, but that didn't really 
lend itself to mass production very well. So eventually uh, the USSR bought the patent rights from Ernst Chain, one of the co-inventors on, on the patent in, in Britain. But throughout all of that, uh, phage therapy kind of persisted. It was always a second choice to penicillin in, in many ways, but because the Soviet Union really struggled to set up strong antibiotic production for a while, and also because there was this advocacy and the institutions already established in Georgia especially, bacteriophage therapy survived really through the Cold War. Two world wars and one Cold War later, in a century that began with the publication of the sequence of the human genome, Medicine is again looking to phage as an ally in the fight against the common enemy. Yeah, so with increasing antimicrobial resistance, people are looking to alternatives. Um, and phage therapy is clearly very promising in that respect because phages aren't really affected by the mechanisms um, that defeat antibiotics in a lot of ways, with resistance, with limitations of how they can work on biofilms um, and things like that. So for, for a lot of reasons, uh, people are turning to phage therapy and wanting to re-explore some of the stuff which we've known about for a long time, for over 100 years. But clearly a lot of the older literature um, has you know, significant technical scientific flaws that it doesn't stand up to the rigour of what we would expect for, you know, for want of a better term, you know, drug therapies in terms of how they should be investigated in the modern era. And so we do need to have a re-look at phage therapy, not starting from the beginning, but, but almost starting from the beginning and reinvestigating this and saying, how can we bring this clearly promising therapy into the modern age, into the 21st century? 